Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Well, hello Dungeonistas, and welcome to the Rugby Dungeon. Thank you for listening, thank you for subscribing, and if you're not already subscribed, I suggest you do so, so you can get this podcast delivered directly to your device. If you are subscribed and you like what you hear, why not leave us a review on iTunes too, because this is of vital importance. You can also find this podcast on Twitter or me. I am at Jay Beardmore. This podcast is at The Rugby Dungeon. And of course, there is Egg Chasers at Rugby Podcast. That comes out every Monday, containing me, Phil and Tim. And this week, Warren Gatland, as we went down to meet him with Canterbury for the Lions kit launch. So keep a lookout for that. Today's guest is Paul Tate. Paul has got phenomenal knowledge on all things South American rugby. We sat down for well over an hour. Uh, and if there's any question you ever wanted answering about um, Argentina, the developing nations, uh, previous scandals at World Cups, Paul is certainly the guy. <clears throat> Before we get into that, uh, a big thank you to our sponsor, Field and Flower. Field and Flower provide grass-fed meats directly to your door. Go onto the website, fieldandflower.com, have a look at what, what they have to offer, select one of their many, many boxes, or select your own box containing 170 cuts of meat and fish, what, whatever you choose. Sit back and wait for it to arrive. Use our code RUGBY20 to receive your first-time 20% discount, and that's it. You just wait and it arrives. Delicious grass-fed meat directly to your door. Okay, enough of that. Enjoy the interview. Very well, thank you. Thank you for coming on, Paul. Now, hopefully today you're going to enlighten us to basically everything to do with South American rugby, and also I believe you've got a bit of a interest in the developing nations such as Georgia. That's correct. Absolutely, I do. Cool. So can you just give me a bit of history about yourself then, and how is it you came about living in Brazil and, well, reporting on all things rugby? Sure thing. I've been living in Brazil, well, first came here in 2003, but been permanently here since 2006. Gotten, always been into rugby, of course, watched all the, the games, variety of teams playing, and uh, the World Cup for me in, in that year, 2003, was so shocking that I, I took a personal interest in, to investigate how it could have been that the the global world rugby, international rugby board, as it was called at the time, were able to put together a World Cup where you had the, the Tier 1 nations with... <clears throat> 20, 21, 22 days to play four matches. And then you had Tonga, Argentina, Italy doing it in 12 to 13 days. So that's where the interest originally came from. Uh, but when I moved here to this part of the world, 
uh, got into playing. I'd already had played in the past, of course, but mm -hmm. uh, since I was living here, uh, made my own club in the local area, uh, began writing for local websites, to, uh, started a blog to uh, write about basically all things in the Americas as a whole, but it was focused on Argentina and getting the World Cup there. Mm -hmm. um, and so after after a while, I, I uh, turned that that idea into a, into a book, which was published, and uh, from there uh, expanded a network of contacts and and people I uh, have have a strong relationship with throughout the region. And from there, with my partners Brian and Ted, we opened America's Rugby News website last last May last June. And uh, so far, it's been going really well, and uh, that's where we're focused on at the moment. It, of course, it's only about the Americas, but all all the the issues surrounding rugby at, uh, in terms of rules, in terms of who the officials are, in terms of where World Cups are played, mm. player eligibility, and so forth. They're all they're all related. I mean, we, we have uh, Canadians playing for Italy. Form, you know, the Italian captain, of course, is from Argentina and, and so forth. And uh, so whenever Argentina are going to play against those countries, there's this strong relationship forged by that. But also when you have someone like Nathan Hughes about to play for England, who's not very English at all, yeah. but <clears throat> gets there because of the three-year rule, which, of course, is not cheating because it's by the rules, as they say. But the point is uh, you kind of – have to question is this really what we want to see you know 13 or so years after Lawrence Delario was winning the World Cup in the same position I'm not sure it is myself um, so these kinds of issues all, all came about basically because I was in this part of the world where Argentina at that time was entirely isolated from uh, comparative performers mm -hmm. I mean they only got to play um, in June or in November. There was no no uh, rugby championship at that time, and so I, I basically got involved through uh, this kind of uh, passion that I had. So I mean, I, I, the the global the global pers uh, perspective uh, or vision is probably the better way to to, uh, to put it. The global vision, uh, I. I basically identified uh, occurring problems that are going on in a variety of places. And I got tired of seeing repetitive every year you would have Australia and <clears throat> New Zealand getting more opportunities, for example, to play, in, let's say, in Wales than, than you have, would have from Argentina, who, who I, I considered to be just as deserving of that opportunity. So looking over towards Georgia, it's similar because Georgia's nowadays not as good as Argentina was 10 years ago or anything like that. But the point is that they're in no man's land because what do they do? They win every year. No one can beat them in mm -hmm. the uh, European uh, championship they play in, which is the Six Nations B, as some people like to call it. Yeah. So they're too good for Russia. They're too good for Romania, for Spain, you name it. So where can they play? What can we do? There's well, the answer is the Six Nations, or uh, logically. However, 
they've been blocked from doing so because it's an old boys club. The same exact problem Argentina had to face. Mm -hmm. So it's about overcoming financial issues and finding a way to justify their entrance, which is really unfortunate because we're talking about international sport. You should be able to play if you're good enough. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's not so simple. Okay. So just paint a picture for me about Argentine rugby and what they were doing and where they were playing prior to the rugby to the rugby championship. Basically, to under, understand Argentina rugby and how they got to where they are today, uh, I would identify World Cups uh, 99 and 2003. Just in brief, Argentina had a, had a ban on professionalism. No player abroad was considered for, for Los Pumas. And so you had a tour to, to New Zealand in 1997, and they were just smashed by uh, around 85 to 90 points. Somehow, they played Australia that year and then defeated them in one of the matches in Buenos Aires. Mm-hmm. So the turnaround began pretty, sh- pretty smartly. And then by, by 1999, of course, they did well in the World Cup. They, they defeated Samoa, Japan, and Ireland. So they made it to the quarterfinals and did, did really well for themselves. Then four years after that, they were given an appalling uh, match schedule by World Rugby, by the organizers. It was John O'Neill, the Australian CEO, uh, who, the chairman who put it all together, the same guy who New Zealand is uh, criticized severely for making it an Australian only hosted event. Of course, it's supposed to be in New Zealand and Australia. Okay. So, so having it being a, uh, he, he basically put profits over rugby. And one example of this is the draw. So the player, the, the match schedule was extremely unbalanced. Um, if you look at the schedules which Tonga, Italy, and Argentina had, and you compare those to Wales, to Scotland, uh, to France, to Ireland, to New Zealand, you'll notice that it's just entirely different. You had uh, anywhere between eight and ten additional days for matches for the uh, founding Tier 1 union members than you did for those other ones I mentioned, Tonga, Italy, Argentina. So it was just it was entirely unjust, uh, extremely poor. And at the when uh, it was so it was so poor to the extent that Argentina played their fourth match before England had played its third match. Is that right? Words, that's right. Wow. Yes. Okay. So if you remember the England Samoa match, yeah, which Samoa was leading quite a while. In fact, that was played uh, the same day in which uh, Argentina was eliminated. So then a week after that, England played Uruguay, and that same weekend, weekend Australia <clears throat> played against Ireland. So the organizers determined that they wanted that very weekend in Melbourne to have Australia versus Ireland. And the reason for that was that was the ties between Australia and Ireland because of uh, Gaelic football and Australian rules football. Uh, their annual match they had that year was in Melbourne that same weekend, so they made the the, the draw for uh, for that specific the schedule for that specific pool to enable that match to be played on that date. 
Wow. And so, unfortunately, so the whole thing was the whole thing was doctored to coincide with with a Gaelic football match. Absolutely, it was a way <laughs> of making making huge money, and and of course they did, didn't they? I mean, uh, that match uh, was packed. This, the Melbourne Stadium, which seats over fifty thousand, was, was full. And if you look back at earlier matches at that same ground, uh, you had, for example, um, Canada versus Wales, which was poorly attended. Mm-hmm. Quarterfinals, two of them were there, in fact, and they were both poorly attended. The Ireland versus uh, France quarterfinal had over twenty thousand seats. Yeah. So yes, they knew what they knew what they were doing. They 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 saw the calendar and said, "We want to have Australia versus Ireland on this weekend." Wow. And so, so how did things go from those deep depths there and improve to what we have today? Sure. So Argentina were eliminated and again by Ireland and by one point only, in fact. So what happened was Pichot's post-match speech, he congratulated Ireland, who was very upset, but you know, he was humble about it. And the following days in the interviews, he told reporters, I hope that the authorities are happy with the quarterfinalists because, you know, this was not balanced at all, was it? Mm. So then from there, you had 2004, they lost Pumas and defeated France in Marseille, the first team to ever do that. Um, 2006, they defeated England in London. Again, the first Pumas side to ever do that. But what happened between those two wins was quite interesting because – you had a player revolt from the professional Pumas, mm-hmm. guys, guys, guys who we all know, like uh, Rodrigo Roncero, uh, Felipe Contoponi, Mario Lidesma, these kinds of world-class, famous, big names. They all got together, including the lesser-known names, like, say, Martin Durant, for example. Yeah. And they signed a letter to the, the union saying, we need to have better facilities and we need to be treated more seriously so that we can uh, be equal to the other major powers in rugby. Yeah. And, and, and at the same time, and a matter of months apart only, in fact, the, the union was officially bankrupt after a player who had been injured in an amateur match had been, for some reason, allowed to play out of position at hooker. Now the scrum collapsed and he broke his neck. So, so because of that, you had a union rule which was broke. So miraculously, uh, they went from, from these situations to go to beat England in, in London. And then the year after that, they, they made it to the quarterfinals of the World Cup. Now the, the path to doing so is really quite simple. It's the same... Uh, explanation as to how Fiji was able to beat Wales at the same World Cup. It's because it does not matter how your individual unions are organized, so long as your top players are exposed to elite level competition rugby. Yeah. So this, this might be the top 14, the Aviva Premiership, Super Rugby, or uh, the Pro 12. Any of these competitions, you're going to be, uh, as a player, developing. And so Argentina, at that gen- one generation, had uh, huge players in terms of uh, Pumas, Pichot, 
from Seattle. These guys all won the top 14 final that year. Yeah. In France. You know, Fernandez Lobby, uh, the older the older brother, Ignacio, he, he'd won with Sale. He'd won the premiership the year before that. So you had, at that time, around about 25 world-class athletes mm-hmm. who were exposed to professionalism to, to the exact identical uh, level in which England's, France's, Ireland's top players all were. And you also had so many other lower-level players to the extent of which in 2007 there were 60 players from Argentina and France and also just as many in Italy. Wow. So the change came from there. After the World Cup, of course, we all know how well they performed. Pichot was clear. He said, we've got to make our own professional rugby of some, you know, and they went about from there, first of all, getting into the rugby championship and then and then from there into Super Rugby too. So now the model is in place to go where where they could only have dreamed of going before. And of course, we've seen two wins over South Africa in a year, something absolutely unimaginable in the past. Uh, problem Argentina has on the field is a separate issue. That's consistency. They can be great one week and then poor the next. Mm. But the systems are in place now to be able to to be a genuine contender. To, for a World Cup, and that that the only team they haven't defeated is New Zealand. Now, current New Zealand, <laughs> them and everyone else, yeah, yeah. I mean, the current New Zealand team is just absolutely amazing. Uh, I'm not, uh, people are suggesting it's the best of all time. I don't know. Well, who what knows? I do know is that much better than anybody at the moment, and uh, <clears throat> I suspect, regardless, that Argentina will be getting that first one over the All Blacks in the next few years. Um, they're basically looking to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're putting a lot of emphasis on young players. Um, that they're, they have regional centers, the Pladar, local academies. And the players you, you know today, such as Pablo Matera, Facundo Issa, these guys have all come through the system. And it's been so trans- such a huge transformation to the extent that in 2007, all but four of the Pumas were from Buenos Aires. Uh, Juan Leguizamón was the only, the only one of any real note who was not from Buenos Aires. That's interesting. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Can you just give me a breakdown of who plays rugby in Argentina, where they're from, and how they develop their players within the nation itself. Yeah, well, rugby's played everywhere. Okay. Uh, but the top, the top level rugby has, has always been Buenos Aires. Uh, that is until post-2007. So what happens in the past, the best players used to all leave wherever they were from and go to Buenos Aires. Yeah. So Leguizamon went to play in Buenos Aires, for example. Now, not, that's no longer the case because now you have the regional academy systems who are identifying the best players as teenagers, converting them into uh, future prospects for uh, Argentina to play, first of all, at under 20 level. Mm-hmm. Then from there, they play Argentina 15, which is the A side, and Pumas and Jaguars in the Super Rugby. So, I mean... For example, Facunda Issa, he, he is from the same town as Levisamon. They're from the same place. 
Um, there are a number of other regular starters who are no longer Buenos Aires players. For example, uh, Juan Imhoff is from Rosario. So is Senatore. Um, from Cordoba, you have the, the starting second row now, uh, Alimano. I mean, he's starting because another guy is hurt, but the point is that yeah. in the past, it would always go to a Buenos Aires player. It doesn't happen anymore. Um, and so this regional change has really, really helped them significantly. And anyone following the, 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 uh, world, the Junior World Championship can see this because Argentina has been beating teams like Australia, like South Africa, like Scotland, like, like France in, these, in this exact tournament. So the players are, are increasingly uh, going on from junior to senior level at a young age. Matera is 23. The guy's played 31 tests. That's remarkable. Yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah. Is. So, so these academies that have been set up then, who are they funded by? Is this union funded or is it World Rugby funded? And how many kids are coming through it? Yeah, it's a combination. Um, World, Argentina is a priority of World Rugby and, and, they, and they get a significant help from that. The exact figures, I'm not sure what they are today. You don't have the current ones with me. Uh, but I mean, you're, you're talking about doubling player numbers at youth level um, in in a generation, basically. That's what they're doing. Yeah. And, yeah. So uh, I, I cannot tell you exactly okay. how much money. But, but basically, what's happened is because they're in the rugby championship and in Super Rugby, they've got a vastly superior. Uh, the budget to work on, um, and the budget, the, the priority of their spending is the players. Yeah, and uh, this is also related to why they're not picking uh, those guys playing in Europe anymore for the Pumas. Come home, come play here. So, no, no, that's interesting. So, obviously, you've got the the Jaguars now. Uh, yep. Underneath them, has there has there been any strengthening of the domestic league or leagues? I should say. Sure. Well, I mean, in Argentina, you have it's it, <clears throat> arguably Buenos Aires, which has the Urba competition, is the world's best city uh, competition of any kind. It's better than what you find in, in in Auckland, for example. Yeah. In Johannesburg, so it's a hugely successful thing. You you get you know fourteen, fifteen thousand people going to semi-finals and finals. Really? It's a big deal. Yeah. Really. Wow, and it's, but it's entirely amateur, and they don't allow uh, academy players to play for the club teams. They argue that it's unfair because uh, basically you're putting a professional against an amateur. Right. So they don't play, but nevertheless, you're talking about a really strong uh, club system. Uh, the the guys who are who are uh, in the, you know, Jaguars or Pumas who come from these clubs, they will remain extremely connected to their clubs. Mm-hmm. This year, the final was won by Belgrano, uh, who defeated Hindu. Hindu usually always are there or thereabouts. And uh, so the scrum half, uh, Thomas Kubeli, was on Total Rugby this week, <clears throat> talking about his experiences playing abroad and about the World Cup. And, you know, he's mentioning that the one thing he misses because he plays for the Brumbies, is that he cannot go to his local club every weekend. 
So for the players, it's a really, really strong connection. Uh, and uh, yeah, and then this kind of like explains a lot of why Argentina did take as long as it did. Yeah. Um, to, to 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 get off the ground to to say goodbye to amateurism because they re they're really genuinely frightened that the future of the amateur clubs could be similar to what you're seeing in places like England in which it, these hugely successful teams of the past are disappearing. Yeah, um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, because I, actually, I, I mean, the only people that are disadvantaged by these successful teams di uh, from the past disappearing are really the committees of those teams. I mean, I actually think that the game in England is thriving at the moment, and it doesn't really matter that Oral are playing at level eight or Manchester are playing at level seven. Uh, it's just one of those things which isn't... it. It isn't really an issue because the overall game itself is, itself is growing. I think those are almost things that these self-interested parties that need to be defeated in order to get that next step to professionalism. And that's just my opinion, of course. I, I agree. I think it's this is a professional era for rugby, mm. and anyone who anyone who wants to hold on to the <clears throat> amateur past, they're just going to drown. Yeah, um, we've seen that. So Japan. You know, defeated South Africa. Why? Because they had players, all professional, most of whom were exposed to, you know, a superior level. Yeah. And, and that's it. It's a simple recipe. You want to be a world-class team, you're going to need a, a list of players who are all exposed to high level. Okay, so what is it about the Argentine culture which allows rugby to flourish, whereas somewhere like Brazil, from what I know, doesn't have much rugby there at all? Yeah, it's starting to change, but I mean, it's a fair it's a fair assessment. Basically, um, Argentina was always uh, a country in which rugby was more successful earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, you had a lot of when the railroads were constructed in Argentina, you were, a lot of it was basically related to uh, British workers building those those railroads, yeah. and they happened to play rugby, so. From a, this kind of uh, is a difference between how it came about to be to be the way it is there compared to somewhere like Chile or Brazil, which, which uh, wasn't as big to the same level. Um, basically, what is the reason why it worked in Argentina is is it was Buenos Aires center. Yep, and and you had big clubs who had rivalries with one another, and they got. Uh, local players from the local regions who all wanted to play for these clubs. Now, soccer was always the big thing, but I mean, you, you have so many cases of Pumas players whose fathers were also Pumas. And mm. So, this is basically how they were able to continue to get players. Now, what the difference is when, when you look at Brazil, the majority of players playing rugby, and I know this because I'm a player here myself. The majority here basically introduced to the game is adults. Um, most clubs don't have any uh, under 20 rugby at all. Okay. Those that do, it's basically limited to rugby sevens. Uh, I mean, you, of course, there are some clubs who do have uh, junior programs, but it's hard. Brazilian Union is trying to change this. They're trying to get all clubs to have junior programs, to have women's rugby as well. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's it's really tough because you're you're asking a, a club who made up of, of players who just want something to do on the weekends. Then they have to go, you know, 
if they want to keep playing in the, in the, the, the competition, they're going to have to uh, expand to have these other varieties of rugby. So it's tough work. <laughs> and uh, um, Argentina, though, you had more and more volunteers, uh, a system which was established earlier on and succeeded. And, cool. and so, yeah. Because, I mean, in, in, in Uruguay, for instance, you're still talking basically about Montevideo. Outside of Montevideo, it's, it's hard to find uh, competitive clubs. Yeah, now uh, just, just tell me uh, if I'm right in thinking this, but in Uruguay, is it not mostly a college game, which is why you get so many students playing in the World Cup? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you, you're, you do have junior systems there. Yeah. But, but talk, speaking, basically it's interesting because if you look at if you look at the difference between Uruguay and, and Chile, you'll notice that in Chile they have many more junior players. And what happens is they go to, to, to college and they stop. They don't play anymore, most of them. Why is that? Now, it's a cultural thing. They're trying to, they're trying to you know, fix it. But basically it's because you know, it's the same thing which happens post-high school in many countries. You have a lot of players at high school, and then when it comes to uh, so university, college, they, they don't they don't play anymore. Is that like the American model of going to play gridiron and then just stopping because there's no teams to play for? Well, it's possibly that, but I mean, I think it's could be a variety of factors. To, you know, some something so simple as a player uh, played because he because he wanted to play for his school. He loved his school or his club, and then he became a young adult, an 18, 19 year old, and he was busy with his own. Uh, studies and other priorities mm-hmm. so you know a, a variety of factors so and, since the inception of the Haguaras then has there been a noticeable rise in interest throughout Argentina in fact throughout all of South America regarding rugby or is this just a fairly isolated example of rugby going professional I I, I def- that's definitely been an in- uh, I can see that there's been an impact sure uh, I mean, you, you can look at 2007 and how transformational that was for rugby in Brazil. I mean, Brazilians hate Argentinians in terms of uh, culture. They will make jokes about them, just like the Portuguese make jokes about Spanish, about yeah. like French, the English, and so forth. But when you talk to any Brazilian who's involved in rugby uh, as a as an administrator, as a player, you're going to get 99 out of 100 of them supporting Los Pumas. <laughs> so they truly identify to that. Absolutely. Um, and it's true basically elsewhere too. In Colombia, they, again, they support Los Pumas. Um, you had huge viewing numbers during the World Cup for when Argentina played in Colombia. Uh, Mexico, again, they support Argentina. Chile, Uruguay, so it's it's a general generally it's spread across the mm-hmm. whole uh, Latin America where they will support Argentina. They relate to them, and uh, so if Argentina succeed, it's good for rugby in general in the region. It's not a case where it's only one country benefiting. Right, I right, I get it. So if you take. Argentina out of the picture then what is the state of the game in the other South American countries and what are they doing for competitive matches on a national level yes well I mean the games coming up now in November are really interesting because 
uh, until this year, you've, it's only been Argentina who've gotten game. Um, you've got Uruguay, you've got Chile, you've got Brazil. They don't have, they never played November matches. I mean, just didn't. Last year, I mean, Chile got one game last year against Spain in November. Uruguay, before they qualified for the World Cup, just couldn't get games. Yeah. That's all, that's all changed now, though. This is how important it is. If you qualify for the World Cup and you can show World Rugby that you're going to turn their investment into resources, then they will very much reward you with giving you more games. So what Uruguay has specifically done is they've made a high center in Montevideo. They have their own national rugby stadium, which seats around 14,000, and they fill it for World Cup qualifier games. So that's great. But more importantly is that they have this, these facilities for the players to train in, to improve in, and they are very much getting better uh, physically, and their skill sets improving too. Okay. So that's yeah, it's fantastic news all around. Argentina want Uruguay to, to, to improve because imagine, let's say, uh, I don't know, Belgium was able to do the same thing and get to the World Cup, and then all of a sudden you'd have a really close country for everyone to play in and in, in the future. Who knows? That's interesting. So, level. So, do you think there is a possibility in the future of the Haguaras spreading the game by maybe having the odd game in Colombia or Brazil? Well, it's interesting. Um, there's talk right now about what they're going to do. That they want to have a second team in South America. Okay. Now, that could be in Argentina or it could be somewhere else. Now, the Uruguayan officials have basically said they could possibly have 10 professional Super Rugby players, but they could not have a team. you got people in Brazil who say Sao Paulo should have a Super Rugby team. Again, this is, at the moment, this is dreaming. It's it's not going to happen. Uh, but who knows? Yeah. Over you know 30 years from now, it could be entirely different. But you, hopefully what, what you have is you have a, a second uh, team in Argentina, possibly in Tucumán or Córdoba, one of these cities in, in the, the center or north. Mm -hmm. uh, because this is a region which has a strong rivalry with Buenos Aires. In fact, the whole country basically does. But they're populated. They produce players. And let's say that there are not enough players to make two good teams. But critics of Italy playing in the Pro 12 say the same thing. The two Italian teams are no good. What are we doing with them here? So Argentina only have one. If they have a second team, then what happens? Maybe they're going to be both you know, heavily diluted in terms of quality. You know, turn out to be like Zebra, for example. Yeah. So that can be boosted how? Getting top players from places like Uruguay, Chile, Brazil, Colombia, you name it, bringing them in and uh, then getting a 30-man squad of which, let's say, 60% is from Argentina, from the north in this case we're talking about, and the remainder completed from elsewhere. It's a possibility, long-term, of course. Right. Do you not think, though, that having a, a second team in Argentina might also be similar to, say, 
the home nation saying, well, we're not going to have Argentina in the Six Nations or the Championship or whoever that minor team is. And actually that second team would be better based in Uruguay or based in Colombia or whatever, whatever the second home might be. I would be open for it being anywhere, to be honest. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be too concerned. You've basically got to get the... Uh, you've got to understand things like um, airports, transport links, and so forth. Mm. Uh, this is the reason why uh, Cardiff gets anything which is Welsh. I mean, Swansea doesn't get to host any. No, anything. it doesn't. So there you go. I mean, it, it would be a great venue, in, in my opinion, to host a Pro 12 final. Yeah, it would uh, actually, because I don't. I mean, there were more people watching the Pro 12 final at the game than there were on t the, uh, than there were on TV, and I think there was only something like eighteen thousand there. It, it, it wasn't a huge crowd. Yeah, well, I mean, I I I, I was co- uh, was corrected by by a I don't remember who it was, but a, a Welshman pointed out to me that he said because I I just suggested on Twitter it would be nice to see Swansea getting a final. The guy said Swansea can't. The only place which can get the final is Cardiff. Mm. Basically, it's because of the airport. Well, so that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, in, Ar- in Argentina, you, I mean, Buenos Aires is, is far and away uh, the hub. Um, uh, Sao Paulo is, is, is a big hub, too, and Santiago is another hub. Mm-hmm. Um, globally speaking, you have flights from those spots, um, intercontinental flights to most places. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you had a team, say, in Tucumán, that's one thing you've got to consider. Um, or a team in Montevideo, again, you got to consider that. I mean, you want a place where it's easy to get in and out of, um, and which you can basically play your game, and then the same night you're, you're, you're flying back to South Africa or, or back to New Zealand or whatever. Um, so I would be happy playing with a team absolutely in Colombia if they could provide this kind of proof that, that they're able to, to – they've got the means of hosting it. Yeah. I mean, but there's been talk of Vancouver, of of San Francisco having teams. Well, yeah, sure. Again, fantastic. <laughs> a very strange thing has happened in this our sister sport, rugby league, which is I believe that there's a Canadian team as of next year, which is going to be playing in level three of the rugby league pyramid, which is absurd. And they're based based out of Vancouver. I think they're called the Wolves. I. They're only based in Vancouver. I think they're going to be doing their training in Bradford and flying over to Vancouver just for their home games. Uh, the, whole, the whole idea uh, strikes me as a little bit tinpot, much like uh, a lot of the Rugby League administration is. But, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating, fascinating experiment. And p- perhaps a rugby union team would be better, better situated there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you've got pro rugby now in the United States. They've got five teams this year. Mm. Next year, they say it's going to be eight teams. Uh, it's not confirmed, but, but sources indicate uh, Toronto is probably going to get a, a team. So Toronto, have... sorry, not Vancouver. It was Toronto that the rugby uh-huh. league team's from. So, I mean, basically, you look at what's going on there and and look at how rugby union has Italy, Japan. Are... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f***? 
are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Argentina and others. And when you look back at rugby league and you realize how healthy rugby is, and then you think to yourself, wouldn't it be nice if we could somehow get Georgia playing uh, somehow against the Six Nations sides? Why not have um, Scotland play a match in Tbilisi every June before they play in Australia or in Japan? These kinds of things. Yeah. So, now, George is an interesting one. And you and I have clashed on this over, over Twitter as to exactly what should happen to Georgia. Now... I do agree with you. They are coming on leaps and bounds. I, I love to watch Georgia play, and I think the most important thing for them is they get November games rather than anything else. Uh, whether that be Scotland, Italy, wherever it is, they should they should be rewarded with with a full tour. I'm not entirely sure it's a good idea for them to go to Six Nations though. But you but you disagree with that? Why? Well, I think there's got to be a clear path. Okay. Um, if, if you're good enough to play in the World Cup. Mm-hmm. and win games in the World Cup, then surely you're good enough to play in the Continental Tournament. I mean, there were there were always people telling me, I, I don't want Argentina in the Tri-Nations. Yeah. Because the Tri-Nations are the best three in the world. And then, this was, we're talking 2006 kind of time. And I'm like, telling, thinking, you know, thinking to myself, well, hang on. Argentina have been getting these wins away in England, away in France, away in, mm. in Wales. And the same countries are defeating South Africa, for example. Something's not right here. <clears throat> so you've got to have a clear path. Um, and what happened, of course, in 2007 is, is Australia lost uh, their quarterfinal. New Zealand lost their quarterfinal. Yep. Argentina won theirs. So that was a clear example of, well, hold on, the tradition is not necessarily the best three in the world. Maybe Argentina should be playing there. So then you look at Georgia and you look at Italy in the, the last World Cup. Well, they both won two matches each. Um, I mean, they both had narrow wins. Uh, Georgia did not play well, but they still won against Namibia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Italy, again, did not play well against uh, the Canadians, but they, they, they won the match. So, uh, I mean, what what's the path? What are we going to do? How are we going to um, deal with this problem in which... Georgia has no regular competition matches against anyone better than that. Well, uh, is, is November alone enough? Well, I just want to address something before uh, advancing this point. Something you just kind of brought up there about Italy. Out of interest, do you think that the Argentine assimilation into Tier 1 rugby has been better than the Italian assimilation? And, and what are the differences be- between the two? Uh, it def- definitely has been. Um Italy were always really strong on the back of capturing foreign players. Yeah. So 
Diego Dominguez, the top scorers. He, he played for the Pumas before he played for Italy, for instance, because the LG Lores used to be different. Yeah. Parisi's from there too. Casa Giovanni. Lots of these these great Italian players are, are not Italians, but of course they qualify. So uh, today, what you're seeing in Italy is you're seeing Georgia is able to beat them at the junior level. Yeah. So what's going on? I mean, Italy's trying to change this. I've, I've seen reports of uh, investing in academies for the youth and so forth. This is exactly what Argentina's been doing. Their youth academies have really transformed things quickly. Some of the uh, the best, uh, most famous forwards today are still only 22, 23 years old. Very true. And, and they came straight through that, the, that system. So that's the basic difference. Italy's never been able to get the young players, uh, not enough of them anyway. I mean, there are here and there, you can find some great ones, like uh, Carol Cana is a player who looks really good to me. Yep. Uh, but I mean, are there 14 other of those? No. No. Yes. I, yeah. So that's yeah. So that's that's quite interesting because I would argue that Italy has no place in um, in the Six Nations or in the Pro Twelve. I'd also argue that if you remove Georgia from their place in the Europe, is it European Nations Cup? I think that's the official. Is that the official yes. title of it? Um, Correct. If you remove Georgia, it almost feels like you're cutting off. Russia and, you, and and particularly Romania. I don't think the answer is actually to remove Georgia from that competition, but maybe to go through the same processes that have gone with Argentina and gone through with Georgia, with Romania and with Russia, and almost have a you know an Eastern an Eastern Six Nations or equivalent. Because I think that that would be far far more beneficial. I think there's forty thousand in um, Romania versus Georgia, so there's definitely an appetite. And also, do you not think you're going to degrade those local rivalries which are so important I think rivalries are a question of, of time they, they can come and go they can change mm. um, I mean just as an example isn't it strange that South Africa have made no effort to play Japan this year surely they should have done that yeah you would have <laughs> thought so yeah right so I mean uh, I mean, our, uh, depending on who you talk to they would tell you who their the best rivals are? Uh, you talk to most people I know uh, from England will, will tell say France, but then other people I know from England will say no. Our, our biggest rivalry is actually against Australia. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, the, I mean, the problem with, with it, problem with England, and I can tell you this because I'm Welsh, is everybody wants to beat them. So whereas yeah. I think I don't know who England's biggest rival are. I don't know if you asked an England fan who they'd say, but for every Celtic nation and the French. It's always England. That's almost like, a, and probably for Argentina too, for you know geopolitical reasons. Oh yes, well Argentina hates, uh, not hate in a hating way, but they have a big rivalry. Done the, the, you know, the, the aforementioned problem of the past, where you have these great players lost to Argentina who are playing for Italy. Yeah. Now, now that they have you know their own Super Rugby team and so forth. These same players are no longer leaving, um, so that's fixed that one problem. But I mean, uh, yeah, rivalries. Of course, you, you will impact the rivalry whenever you change something. This was one of the problems that was raised by people criticizing uh, any change to the tri-nations. We don't want Argentina on board. Why? We're happy playing against ourselves. Mm. And my 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 response is, is that 
what's the big picture here? Um, for me, my answer is I would like to see better World Cups. Yeah. As possible. So let's to have better World Cups, we need more Georges causing more upsets. More Japan's causing more upsets. So let's find, if we can, annual competitions for them to play in. So uh, in the case of, for example, the United States and Canada, forever, they just couldn't get any games. Now, they used to get, uh, if they were lucky, one game a year against uh, one of Ireland, Scotland, or Italy. Now, what's happened now is they have, now they have the new America's Rugby Championship, which is America's Six Nations. So you've got USA, Canada playing it every year against Argentina, which is actually the A team. Yep. But regardless, you've also got Uruguay, Brazil, and Chile all involved. Now, many people would say, oh, you know, you've got three great teams in terms of World Cups, and they're always involved, and you've got three others. One of them played in a couple, the others are no good. I don't know. My, my, and I mean, uh, you look at the tournament this year, what happened? Well, first of all, United States lost against Brazil, so there's, there's a, it's definitely worth investing yeah. in this. We can apply the same thing to other places, then perhaps we can find ways of getting Georgia on board, you know, into the Six Nations. Or maybe, maybe the answer is different. Maybe Six Nations needs to be a home unions tournament, and we need to have a European Cup of some kind. I mean, you had uh, ten. European countries at uh, Red Bull World Cup 2011, I believe. Yep. So, how how can we only have a six nations? Why isn't there are ten nations? That kind of thing. So let's can, maybe it's best to find a way of, of having a uh, European Cup every, every four years. Have one host. Let's say Wales host it. So there's a there's a way of giving Swansea some big games. And, you know, there are many many possibilities, but I would say that the current model doesn't serve the current needs it serves the past needs more than the present yeah that's a really interesting interesting point actually um you did mention previously about the players not leaving uh argentina because obviously the Haguares solves that problem for them they don't need to go abroad and as such when they don't go abroad they don't end up playing for italy or france or whoever else it is out of interest do you think the Haguares might have the, un- the unintended consequence of destroying the strength of the Pumas, which is they had players all over the top leagues gaining experience in all different types of rugby, whereas now they're pretty concentrated in just one team and not even a very successful team in uh, on the scale of things. Absolutely. No, they, they, they were very disappointing in the <clears throat> campaign. Uh, there are a variety of explanations for that. I mean, the largest ones, travel, they had to travel so much. Mm. Next year, let's see if this is any different because... I've looked at the numbers, and they're going to travel basically as much as most teams. Yeah. The Sun will, unfortunately, going to travel four times as much as almost everybody. It's just it's, it's unthinkable, and that's what they got. That's what they have to do. Yeah. So I mean, you, you you're going to have uh, basically the established core players. Let's let's identify uh, three per position at most. Those guys are going to stick around. Yeah. Now, you're talking about other guys who get an opportunity here or there. They come in because of injury or they're playing for the Argentina 15 and they're almost there for Pumas, but not quite. These are the kinds of guys who are going to be lost. And that has, in fact, been happening this year. You've had a 
of you guys leave. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, there's a guy who, Felipe uh, uh, Arugi, who just signed for Edinburgh. In fact, he's playing uh, this weekend uh, against uh, Treviso. He's starting uh, because now he's injured. Yeah. So, got there. He's already starting. The guy's young, couldn't get starts regularly. He's actually uncapped, but he has played for uh, the Super Rugby side, The point is, he's going to be playing for Edinburgh until the end of January, and then in February he'll be back home. So that's an example of, of uh, possibilities, because Super Rugby, in effect, is half the year. Well, what do you do for the other half of the year if you're not a, you know, wanted for, you're not getting uh, time in the test team? That, that's a big problem. Yeah. Yeah, I, I take your point there. Um, and I do wonder if we're going to see more and more players like um, Ivan Etzebeth coming over to the Premiership just on short-term deals, basically to fill up their time and just to get that extra bit of payment, particularly if their domestic league um, isn't isn't that lucrative. Absolutely. You look what's happened because of Super Rugby too, the Curry Cup in South Africa and the NPC in New Zealand. There's shadows mm-hmm. of what they used to be. I think South Africa's got such a unique set of problems that is incomparable to any of the other nations. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we see South Africa decline at a rate of knots now. Well, yeah, they're in great danger. I mean, uh, my, my South African friends, they're regularly mad. They are all extremely worried. And um, let's see what happens. We, we don't know, but the, uh, basically the, the, the strongest point that has been able to maintain South Africa as a world power is, is the production line. And the production line is basically related to uh, leading South African schools. Mm. We, all, we, all, we all know about the, um, the race problems that they have. Um, but you, you look at big-name box, and many of them are from the same schools. Yeah. That, that's, that's incredible. It tells you that although the country is very large and has big cities in a lot of places, it's essentially a small uh, group which is supplying the, the majority of the core. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because they are, A, from a very small population when you compare it to the whole South African nation. And then there's also this phenomenon now where they've got university games, for instance, are being interrupted. It feels to me as, as if rugby... Uh, in South Africa has been painted as a sport of the past and there's real political pressure to completely reform it or make sure the teams look different or it just seems like they're very challenging times now for South, for South African rugby. Absolutely. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that, that I, you know, in many ways that I'm, that's not the, the country I'm, you know, in love with for, because uh, they have extreme problems. Mm-hmm. It's hard to, any real solution how do you balance the problems of the future together with the present and the past very tough very tough and most people have a different uh, explanation for you unfortunately the government uh, has the overwhelming say in what they do and uh, few people that i'm in touch with anyway seem to be very happy with that yeah it's really sad because you know South Africa should always be there or thereabouts. They should they should not be losing by score lines of, of fifty points against New Zealand. That should never be happening. Yeah, I mean they do have one uh, advantage which they'll never lose. They are drawn from the largest race of humans in the world, which makes me wonder why the Dutch aren't any good at rugby. 
Yeah. I don't know either. Um, not sure about that one. <laughs> but um, it's interesting because South Africa always produces so many world-class second row. Mm. Uh, so let's just go back to Georgia then. What do you think needs to, needs to happen in the next couple of years for them to pr- progress to a point where you think it'd be acceptable f- for them to go, go to Six Nations? What criteria do they, do, do they need to fill? Well, to play in the Six Nations, that's got to be of the, the level uh, required, uh-huh. which, let, which let's say is capable of uh, beating the Italians. Yeah. Let's say that's the level. Okay. Are they there yet? We don't know. And, and this is the central problem. Nobody knows. Because they don't get these games. There, there ought to be a system in place in which, in the minimum, the, the wooden spooner from the Six Nations plays against Georgia in Georgia that same year. Yeah. So I would look at a part in which Georgia play at home every November, three games at home, and they also get a home match every June um, against, let's say, Italy or Scotland, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, before those same teams travel to play their their tours, um, Canada and the United States are able to host such games, Georgia should be able to as well. World Rugby should, you know, come on board to help with the cost of this because it's very expensive. Yeah. I mean, uh, Fiji, for example, have to pay uh, around about 300,000 euros just for insurance for their players in November for three matches you're talking about. Why, why so much? Is, is that... Sorry, I don't really understand that. Is that... Um... Is that more than other teams? Uh, no, it's the same. It's not more. But the point is that the player, when in November, if you get hurt, yeah, uh, you can't go back to play for Clermont or Sardisans or whoever. Got you. Got you. You're gonna miss. You're gonna. You're gonna miss an extended period, and the union has to pay for that cost. Now, and that, to be able to do that, they need to take out insurance on all their players Got before you. the start. Before the start of the the tourist, so yeah. Well, I mean, in that case, three hundred thousand. In that case, I'm actually surprised it's so little. Oh really? Oh yeah. Okay. I mean, if you think well, about, I mean, I guess if you think about the career of a player and how much that how much they <laughs> earn, and if you look, <laughs> if you lost two players who both played for Claremont at you know at the peak of their powers, that would be some incredibly. I mean, what a top player is probably paid about three hundred thousand pound, three hundred thousand pound a year anyway. Which is more than the more than the premium. Yeah, I'm not sure to be honest, but I mean, it, Georgia, you've got an extremely good forward pack, and mm. you've got an okay backline. Yeah. Now, I I, I don't think they're going to beat Scotland. They're going to play the Scots this month, but I mean, uh, they played them once before in the World Cup, and it was a trialless match. But I mean point was it was i think it was 15 6 to, to scotland yeah they haven't played them since something's wrong with that uh you know scotland are not going to be beating new zealand uh, too often nope as we know they could be beating georgia often but we don't know we don't get to see such games yeah i think instead of instead of being similar to rugby league in which you have limited uh a limited number of teams Let's try to grow it as, you know, uh, to, to get more involved. If someone comes along, such as Georgia, and is able to beat a team like Tonga, 
at the World Cup, and they also defeated Samoa in at home uh, prior to that. They defeated both Canada and the United States as well in home matches and in, in November tours. So they're pretty good accomplishments. I, I would I would say it's important to find a way of making sure that they can then have matches against higher level uh, sites. Uh, Scotland and, and Italy are currently the two I would identify. Yep. Uh, I'd like very much to see those two playing matches in Tbilisi uh, every year. Now, is the same it, thing. Sorry? I mean, is there not an issue as well that, I mean, you mentioned it earlier on, that you need a place where you can get to. Is Tbilisi not a little bit inaccessible, for instance, the travelling Welsh fans? Oh, I, absolutely. I agree. I agree. It's tough. Mm. Um, let's take Japan as an example. Japan is playing at home against Argentina, November 5. Yeah. Then they're playing the next match in Georgia. And then after Georgia, they're playing Wales. Now, there are not going to be any direct flights from Georgia to Wales. They're probably going to fly to Frankfurt, for example, then Frankfurt to London, then London to Cardiff, something like that. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's not easy, and it's going to be this, the same thing which a Six Nations side would have to do. Uh, not easy at all. But let's look at the, the big picture here. Last, uh, last June, we had Wales playing against um, the Chiefs in New Zealand, Super Rugby side. I mean, yeah. Oh, don't talk about that. Midweek <laughs> games are fantastic. But if we can have this match added, let, let's instead let's add a, a test match. You know, why not? Yeah, I I, I mean, I do think that the most logical thing for, well, to happen for for Georgia is that teams stop on their way through to to wherever they're going. So, you know, if you're going, and same with Japan. I mean, there's no reason why teams can't stop off at Japan on the way to uh, Australia or on the way to New Zealand. Yes, I uh, firmly agree, firmly agree. And it's very, very, very important that uh, World Rugby finds a way to get as much exposure to, to Japan in the coming years. The World Cup's going to be there. They've already beaten uh, the Springboks, of course. Let's find a way of getting more teams to play there. Let's make it happen. Let's, ha- let's make the World Cup a huge success. Now, very early on in the interview, you kind of mentioned the old boys club and you weren't particularly impressed. And I, don't, I think, you know, with... The arguments you've put forward, no one can be particularly impressed with how the founding nations have, or founding unions, have handled tier two clubs in the past. Sorry, tier two nations. Now we've got a situation where Augustin Peashot is basically second in command in world rugby. How do you think that's going to affect everything? That's going to change it a lot. (laughs) I would be very, very, very concerned if I was working for Irish rugby uh, today because... As we know, Ireland has just has just get, uh, con off, has just contracted uh, a New Zealand player who's already been there for two years. Yeah. And, and one year from now, he's going to be eligible for Ireland. That's right. Now, yeah. There's a committee. There's a committee which is researching <clears throat> into the current player eligibility, which Pichot himself has heavily criticised. So I would suggest that the uh, player eligibility law will change possibly to five years, as has been speculated. If that happens, what's going to happen for Ireland? Well, first of all, uh, players like Aki are, are 
going to need to play five rather than three years in Ireland. That huge investment they just made in him to keep him at Connacht, well, that's that's just gonna, gone out the window, isn't it? It's going to yeah. be missing money. I mean, it would be extraordinary if that happened. But, I mean, perhaps that is what is needed. Wouldn't Just imagine uh, the shock it would send to the unions in particular uh, of – uh, well, okay, you, you, instead of investing in your own national youth, you're going to find some guy who's uncapped by South Africa or New Zealand. You're going to bring him, bring him over and nationalize him, mm. which is happening. Yeah. So one guy who's about to become Irish won't become Irish because the law is going to change before that, and he's already signed the deal for Connaught. So imagine if that did happen. Now, someone on Twitter commented that he, that's what he would like to happen. He'd like the law to change now. Between him getting the big paycheck and being officially eligible. Yeah, see, so I, I, think people, I, I, mean, uh, I, I of course I understand. Everyone wants to see English lads playing for England. Uh, we don't want to see a uh, load of New Zealanders coming. All, all, I, I get all that. But for me, it's not really about the national level stuff. It's about the individual stuff. So, if Bendiaki can't make the money he can make playing for New Zealand because he simply won't get selected by by the All Blacks, I find it really tough to say to a guy, "Look, you can't make the money that you need to support yourself and your family over in over in Connacht because we simply won't we simply won't let you play for Ireland." Now, I know the argument's different in a case like Nathan Hughes, that where the money it's not because he's not good enough to get selected; it's because the money isn't um, isn't good enough. But even then, I think. You know, Nathan Hughes has got every right to come over here, qualify for England and play, not only just within the rules, but also morally, because, you know, that is a, is a very short career, and you are entitled to make as much as you possibly can, no matter what the format of the competition. I mean, that would be, that would be my argument against the, the five-year period. It seems incredibly unfair, because it's almost half a, it's basically half a career. Uh, no, sure. No, there, there are pros and there are cons. Mm. Absolutely, I'm not going to pretend there are only uh, cons. I, I just, su- I just suggest that the cons definitely outweigh the pros. The, the, the countries who are benefactoring from this the most happen to be the establishment. Yeah, uh, they happen to be these these countries. That, I mean, how can could someone like Fiji ever get someone like, um, let's say, Bundiaki? They they could never get him no. when he's not Fijian. No, you're Number two, right. Fiji has so that's it. But do you know what I really? Do you know what I really worry about though? More than um, tier one nations taking tier two players, I worry more about top level clubs signing these guys and them never showing up for a national team full stop. Because if you look, I mean, if you look at Toulon, it almost reads as a bunch of guys who are from tier, the best of the tier twos. You know, you've got uh, the American guy, what's his name? Uh, Samu Manoa. You've uh, you've got the Georgian lock. Uh, you, they they tend to target all all these guys because they know that they won't lose them for internationals. And I just hope the law of unintended consequences doesn't strike. And instead of say instead of the tier two nations getting all these fantastic players and spreading the game, the absolute opposite happens, which is these big clubs snap them up because they know that they won't be going on international duty. It definitely happens. Definitely mm. happens. I'm not gonna pretend it does. Uh, but I mean, overall, Manoa he played in the World Cup. Yeah. So uh, he act- he actually got hurt in the World Cup and then wasn't able to play as good as 
as he had prior to that for Toulon and that, that following season. Now he's getting he's improving now again. Hopefully, we'll see him playing well for the U.S. in November. Mm. Um, I mean, there are, sure there are, there are absolutely arguments saying the clubs are evil and whatnot. But here's the thing again, my for me anyway, my my ultimate desire for rugby is to see better World Cups. Yeah. I don't want to see World Cups where we know who's going to win the quarterfinals. Yeah, we don't want to see World Cups when we look drawer and we can already pencil in who's going to win what. So we need more. Uh, the only way this is ever going to change is, is having a, some way in which uh, countries from a specific uh, players from a specific country are able to go through the system, play professionally, and then transform their club form onto the international level. Just so happens that today, basically, France, England, and the Pro 12 are the only places they can do this because, uh, as we all know, in, in Super Rugby, it's very hard for anyone, any foreigner, to be a regular. Yeah, uh, it's just such a low percent per percentage. Of course, there are players who, who do play there who are not, uh, you know, for example, who are from Fiji or Samoa. But it's not too many of them. There are any more Fijians and Samoans playing in top 14 than there are in Super Rugby. It's just the reality. Yeah. So well, when 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 Samoa defeated Australia in, in 2011, that was much more to do with uh, England and France than it was Super Rugby. Tuilagi, uh, Tuilagi was a superb man. He scored a try. Talking about uh, uh, Leicester Tigers. Yeah. Not talking about Islanders. Yeah, and, and you know the other thing as well, which I I really worry about, and I worry about it both on a national level, and there's also an element of um, the academies that does this as well. Manny Tuolangi, you'd have to really argue hard to say he isn't English, purely for the fact that well, no, you wouldn't have to argue hard. It's actually quite an easy argument. But he's been over here for so long. He's been educated in England. In fact, that would be the ultimate way to get around the five-year rule, which is to get these kids even younger than you're already getting them. And that's a problem I have. It's not a huge problem, but a problem I have with all the academy credits, all the premiership clubs. Now, instead of just signing the best young players, you can't do that because you lose your academy credits. So instead, they sign the best young school kids and then send them, send them to different schools. And I have no problem with that fundamentally, but it does open the, you know, it does raise the question of are they targeting these kids before they are fully able to make good make good decisions? And are the actions of the clubs and the nations going to be in with the best interest um, of the kids i think it's fair to say so far with the aviva clubs and academies the answer is categorically yes but it is a danger absolutely i mean personally my view on the matter is there's a there is a fundamental difference between being a child and being an adult yeah and now someone such as <clears throat> the the winnie paulus for example they uh, play for England, of course. Uh, some some would say, "Hey, they should be playing for Wales." Absolutely, they, they should no, be. They should be, they should be playing for Tonga or Australia or New Zealand because one of them's Australian-born, one's New Zealand-born. Their father played for Tonga. They rugby started in Wales, but when they moved to England, they were still really young. So, for me, them playing for England is entirely justified. Mm. That's the difference. You look at that example, then you look at Nathan Hughes. One of them moved as an adult. One of them moved to play for a club, and it just so happened that he 
turned out to be pretty damn good. And so, hey, let, let's, let's solve a, a potential problem we have. We have a bit of a shortcoming in, in this position. You know, let's get Hughes. Let's make him ours. Yeah, that's I, different now. And I think Nathan he's been quite open about it as well that he's come over here for the money. I, I'm and I have no problem with that whatsoever, uh, on a personal level. But I understand the national argument, sure. Yeah, I mean the thing is, uh, talking about Hughes just for a little bit. I mean, it, he in fact uh, was selected for uh, Fiji under twenties or was it under twenty ones? I'm not sure. One of the two. I remember the point this. Is, Yes, I mean, what what's going on world rugby? How come we're having guys who play at junior level for one country playing for another? Now, and if you play junior level under twenties for Wales, you cannot play for anybody else nope. because Wales does not have an official A team. Why do we not universally apply this? Isn't that not logical? Yeah, I mean, I thought that was the universal rule. Is it not? No, if you don't have an A team, they use your under twenties as your A team. Yeah, yes. Uh, sorry, that's what I thought the universal rule was. So Wales have only just re-established their A team, I think, which I think is a, wa- a waste of time because I d- I don't want to see Wales A. I don't think anyone else wants to see Wales A. But um, I you know I, I think an under twenty ones is fair. Yeah, I, I would make it universal. I would simply say or both, just ring fence and both. What's that? Or or just apply it to both under twenty ones and A team. Absolutely. I mean, that yes. that would make that more makes... more sense. Yeah. I mean Manu Tuilagi, yeah, he's from Samoa. But the amount of time he's been in England, moving he's a teenager or a young child anyway, when when he arrived, he's very English. Yeah. Uh, I, I have no problem at all seeing him playing for England. Yeah. It's very different than seeing uh, you know, WP now playing for Scotland. It's yeah. just a real, real shame seeing a country with a spectacular history of props than having South Africans playing for them. Oh my God, it's tough. Yeah, but there again, WPNL is is one incredible prop and developed very, very late in his career, but by all accounts. Um, just quickly then, um, what else can we expect from P-Shot? Do you have any other insights to his political views and so how he might shape the, shape the game? Well, he... Um, he wants what's best for uh, for Argentina, and also, and he seems to be of the view of that. What if it's good for Argentina? It's going to be good for 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 everybody. Yeah. The reason being, Argentina was isolated for as long as it was. So, uh, for example, Italy was was a bidder for the next World Cup, twenty twenty three. It's not happening anymore. That's a, a real shame from a shop perspective. Now he he is, he's openly uh, declared to World Rugby that he wants Argentina to host in 2027. And in fact, the president of Argentina has already talked to World Rugby about it. So it's very much a possibility. I'm sure in the coming years we're going to see uh, Argentina being increasingly considered for this. And um, because what we've tended to have is just just uh, going one from your place four years later. So New Zealand have had it twice, England twice, uh, France, Wales, in one way or another, had it multiple times. You know, South Africa is the only prior host of only hosted it once, and of course did it by itself. So this is one change we're going to have, very much so. Another one is I think we're going to have uh, a greater player-focused emphasis. Pichot himself 
he's not so interested uh, in terms of being the most kept player. So, I mean, we have players now who, who, who are playing 140 caps. It's a lot. And so I think we're going to have possibly fewer matches. Um, and uh, also a decrease in the amount of games one can play professionally per year. Uh, that, that, uh, okay. And also, do you think it's possible not only to get a World Cup in Argentina, and I very much hope that they do, because it would be a great tour- touring destination. Do you think it's possible that we'll ever see the Lions there? And has there been any discussion about that whatsoever? Yeah, that's, there has been, yes. Um, it, it, it's the same as the same in terms of Georgia and the Six Nations. You have financial commitments. The Lions have financial commitments to, to go to South Africa after New Zealand and then Australia after that. Having said that, yes, they can absolutely make it happen. No doubt about it. Um, why not, in fact, because the Argentina problem, is, one could argue, is, well, how can we have 10 games there? We can have three games in terms of test matches, throw in a match against, you know, a composite side of some kind, maybe a South American opponent, such as a composite South American 15, which is England played uh, last time they were down there. Well, could they not um, so kind of still- could they not make their way down America and play Canada, USA, three tests against uh, three tests against Argentina? They've got they've got Uruguay there. I think they could make it make a bit a bit of a tour of that. Absolutely, this is what my colleague Brian Ray, in fact, has proposed. He's saying, why not start off a Lions tour in New York, then go from New York to to Toronto, Toronto yeah. to Vancouver, work, keep going. Well, why not? Why can't we do that? Uh, I, I absolutely agree. It's a total, total possibility. That sounds fantastic. Uh, tell Brian Ray that he, that that he sounds like a very bright man. <laughs> we'll do so. <laughs> well, Paul, you've been absolutely superb. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I feel like we could have spoken a lot longer about a lot more things, and hopefully, in the future, we can have you again and we can do just that. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Massive thank you to Paul for taking the time to speak to myself and, well, you guys. You can find Paul at Argentina Rugby underscore 2027. There's a clue in the title there for his Twitter. And you can also find him at americarugbynews.com. Really good site. Go have a look. And you know any questions, any issues, anything you want to bring up regarding South American rugby, that man is the authority by far. Also, have a look at us on Twitter, at Rugby Dungeon, sorry, at The Rugby Dungeon, me, at Jay Beardmore, and of course, go and visit our sponsors who keep this whole thing going. Field and Flower, rugby, uh, which is uh, code Rugby 20, Cornerstone, and Beer 52, Rugby 10. Until then, I will see you next week when hopefully I'll be joined by Grayson Hart of Glasgow Warriors. So look out for that. That should be on Facebook Live on Friday night. Hopefully, I will see you all there. Goodbye. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 